Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. So this episode, we plan to shed some light on, well, light. (laughs) My guest for this episode is an expert in optics. We plan to give an introduction to what light is and explain the ever so interesting electromagnetic spectrum, you know, Radio, micro, infrared, visible light, UV, X-ray, gamma ray, if you've heard of any of those. And then we'll round off this episode by showcasing my guest star's prestigious work on minimally invasive diagnoses, or blood examination using optics, or light. So speaking of my guest star, meet Alex Namad Rohan. Alex obtained his bachelor's degree in physics at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City. He then obtained his master's degree and his PhD in biophotonics at Cardiff University, where he quickly realized he'd much rather spend a week trying to solve some hideous quadruple integrals rather than spend a week wondering why his laser just doesn't work properly. Since obtaining his PhD, he has worked as a researcher studying how light interacts with matter and its meaning. So he currently teaches a course on light-matter interaction at university, allowing him to share his love for the subject with other people. Apart from optics, he's written the first draft of a fantasy novel, which might one day be turned into a second draft. Hopefully he keeps us in tune with his work. But in his free time, if such a thing could exist, he likes to spend time with his wife and dog, play tabletop RPGs, learn new languages, and when there isn't a pandemic going on, go caving. Okay. Now that you've been introduced to the topic of this show, which is light, and our fantastic guest star, we're going to head into our first commercial. But hang around because when we come back, Alex and I will be diving into a crash course on light and the electromagnetic spectrum. Cheers. Thanks for coming on the show, Alex. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. So this first segment, we're going to be introducing light, the electromagnetic spectrum, and then a couple other things that uh, we threw on here that I think would be really cool. But I'm curious, maybe we should start out with this, the little fun fact that I came into contact with. Did you know that the ancient Greeks, you know, like in 400 BCE, they believed, so this is Plato, Euclid, and uh, Pythagoras, all three of them thought that light came from our own eyes, like flashlights. Rather than us receiving them, we were we were projecting light out of our eyes. <laughs> did you ever hear that? Yeah, I did not know that. Isn't so, that so crazy? The second I closed my eyes, I stopped producing light. And yeah, uh, okay. That's and how they perceived what... darkness. They thought yeah. whenever the lights came off, that was the end of it. That was light. That was that's, there's nothing else. <laughs> Isn't that yeah, crazy? That's, that's yeah. fun. It would be fun though to have little light producing mechanisms in our eyes. Yeah, it would be really cool. <laughs> We'd be superheroes then. <laughs> yeah. uh, so thanks for that little fun fact. I did not know they believed we produced light rather yeah. than detecting it. We've definitely come a really long way in about, what, 2,000 years? So that's... <laughs> <laughs> you, you would hope. taken us a couple thousand years. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, we say that that's a long time, but it's really not. It's quite surprising that... You know, the grand scheme of time, it's its only taken us 2,000 years to, to come up with some of the gadgetry that we have today and taking advantage of the electromagnetic spectrum. But I yeah. guess to start off, maybe we could start with the, the bare bones here. So what is light when you think about it fundamentally? Well, there's two aspects to it, which we can talk about 
separately, I guess. There's the 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 particle aspect, these little packets of light uh, or photons, and uh, there's a wave aspect, which is actually the one that I'm more familiar with because it's the one I directly work with. So it depends on whether you look at it classically or quantum. So if you zoom in and go into the really really tiny quantum world, then you're dealing with photons. If you zoom out and look at it in a macroscopic way, so how light interacts with objects that you can hold in your hand, like your phone or bottle of water, then you're talking about waves. And uh, in terms of waves, it's a periodic change, a periodic oscillation of what we call the electromagnetic field. So this is essentially an electric field and a magnetic field, which are changing and when one changes it causes a change in the other and so that causes a change in the first and so it's sort of feedback process which causes this wave phenomenon this periodic phenomenon it might all sound like really taboo whenever you first start to study this especially for the people that are that are listening you know or watching they're like oh wow you know you're talking about you have something that's that's a particle and then there's something also that you know it's a wave so which is it well it's it's both it's simultaneity but light is, so in a really lay terms, light is like the smallest quantity of energy that can be transported in a wave and behaves simultaneously as a particle at a very, very large speed, a speed that's instantaneous to us, right? So what is that very large speed? It is uh, right around uh, 300,000 kilometers per second. So it's a... Uh slightly less than that is 299 something right around 300,000 kilometers per second or 300 million meters per second so that is ridiculously fast the <laughs> fastest things humans have been able to build travel at uh, i think rockets would be possibly a couple thousand a few thousand kilometers per hour mm -hmm. so now make that 3,600 times faster to get kilometers per second, and you're still at just a few thousand. You still have to multiply that by another hundred to get to 300,000 kilometers per second. So it is ridiculously fast. As you said, Sam, it's, it's instantaneous to us in our time scale. Right, yeah, because it's, it's how fast we can perceive what's going on, the change, right? And another thing I guess that's really important here is we talked about how it is a particle and a wave, but I think when people think particle, they think of something that has mass, but no, light or a photon, we'll just say a photon, a photon is something that just doesn't have mass at all. It's just pure energy, which is something very important because, you know, I would think particle way before I started studying physics, I would think, oh, you know, it's like an electron or a proton or something. No. Not even the slightest. It's something that's pure energy, pure energy. And we'll talk about how it's made here in a little bit, but I want to move on here and talk about, let's talk about, I guess, the photons itself. Maybe you have uh, some insight on photons, the particle aspect. Well, they, as you said, they don't have mass, but they still behave uh, to a degree as particles, individual photons do. So if you have, say, take the young experiment so young what he did was um he, he took a screen a completely opaque screen and he had two slits made into that screen so he, he fired photons individually and the way uh 
he didn't actually do this, but it's a young type experiment. That it's an experiment that we've done, we've managed to do since his actual experiment was with lots and lots and lots and lots of photons. So what we call continuous wave light. So light that is, because there's so many photons that it behaves like a wave. But in a young type experiment where you do individual photons, you can fire a photon and know whether it, you can measure whether it went through one slit or through the other. So the way the way a particle would, right? A wave would go through sort of both simultaneously because it exists in all of space at the same time. But uh, a particle doesn't, it's localized. Right. If, if it goes through one slit, he would see a little dot on a, on a screen behind that, on the detector behind that. And if it goes through the other slit, you'd see a dot on the other side. The funny thing is if you start doing that with lots and lots of photons, Right. You do it with one, and then you fire another, and another, and another. And you see where they fall. The collection of little dots you get on the detectors behind that, so the, the pattern that you see behind that, is actually that of a wave and not that of a particle. So each individual photon behaves as a particle, but then when you take a whole bunch of them together, they behave like a wave. You don't see that they fall only where a particle would fall but they fall exactly where, where you would predict using the maths that physicists use to describe waves. Right, because the photon is, is the position in which it is moving throughout that wave, right? It's that instantaneous spot in space where light is behaving or existing. It's a snapshot. They're snapshots. Sort of. It's still not 100% localized because then you would be violating what is called Heisenberg's it's, uncertainty principle, yes, yes. which says you can't know the, the, for example, for a particle, the position and the momentum of the particle. So that is the position and how quickly it is traveling. You can't know them infinitely precisely at the same time. No. So, so you still have, you, both are still a little fuzzy. But yes, a, a photon is, I would say with that caveat, that is slightly fuzzy in the position. We don't know exactly whether it's here or maybe here or, you know. We, we try to get it as close as possible. It's, you know, it's yeah. probability. What is the most probabilistic point in space in which this is going to yeah. be, behave, exist? Uh, however right. you would like to say it. It's funny in physics, the deeper you go, the harder it is to, to model things. The universe is not as a uh, cookie cutter as we think, <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially in, you know, the quantum realm, like something very, very uh, small, but yes. So. I guess now explaining waves a little bit more. So waves are the electromagnetic waves. You have the electric field wave and then you have the magnetic field wave, right? Moving perpendicular through space. And That's this is the propulsion of energy in the form of electromagnetism. Is, is that, exactly. Isn't that what the, the wave is? Precisely. So if you think about uh, 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 an easy and nice way to think about it is in 2D because electromagnetic fields, EM fields, are 3D, so it's a little difficult sometimes to visualize them. But in 2D, you can, you can sort of draw them on a piece of paper and you can visualize them more easily. So if you think of a pond and you throw a pebble into the pond, you see it's going to fall into the water at some point. And from that point, you'll see waves ripple out. So these waves are the water moving up and down. Now, it looks as though the waves were actually moving outwards from the point of impact of the of the pebble of the water, but they're not. So molecules of water are actually moving up and down. 
And so right where the pebble hits, the water goes down and then a little bit outwards from that, it goes up. And then afterwards it goes down where it previously went up and a little bit outwards it goes up and so on. Mm -hmm. So it looks like they're actually traveling outwards. And the propagation of energy is indeed outwards. So you have two different things, which are the direction in which the particles of water move, the molecules of water move, and the direction in which the energy is propagated, which we call the direction of propagation of, of, of the wave. So in the EM case, you have two fields. It's no longer um, just the molecules of water, but you have the electric field and the magnetic field. And as you said, they oscillate, they go up and down, so to speak, uh, they become positive and negative um, in, in perpendicular directions to each other. And then the direction of propagation of energy is perpendicular to both the electric field and the magnetic field. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. If you're not too familiar with physics, but you want to know what light is, the best way to think about it is take like a fish tank, look at the side, and then, you know, like you said, drop a pebble in, and then you get to see the waves, get to see the wave moving through. That's kind of behavior in which in which you could see it's it's best represented that way in a real like a, a normal application and then also we have to think about the wave itself so if you know anything about waves uh there's three properties that are important uh, one is wavelength which is probably the most important then there's the amplitude and its frequency so frequency deals with you know how fast the wave is moving through uh one point in space and then also the wavelength is the distance between the the crest and the crest of the wave or the trough and the trough so the top and bottom points of the wave and what we attribute these characteristics to is the electromagnetic spectrum like i just said wavelength is probably the most important because it marks how energetic light is right it's how much energy is being packed in the sequence. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit more, add on to that. And Sure. Yeah. Uh, right before I jump into the electromagnetic magnetic, magnetic spectrum, though, let me talk a little bit about this wave-particle duality. So we all know Newton. We've heard about Newton. We know Newton's laws. He was this sort of the, the scientist par excellence, right? He was the probably one of the most famous scientists that have existed on Earth. So... At the time, at, at his height, he was head of the Royal Society. He edited journals. He he was basically renowned throughout, at least throughout the United Kingdom, as this absolutely great, absolutely brilliant scientist. He, and, and also, he was not a very nice person. He had a, a bit of a temper. So he yeah. really didn't want to be on his, on his bad side because it meant he probably didn't have access to getting your work published, at least in British journals. So, um, because he was head of the Royal Society, so he basically, what he said was law in the world of, world of science. And he was absolutely convinced that light consisted of particles. So yeah. he had created his three laws of motion that described how things behaved. And it wasn't proven yet, but there was this sort of idea that maybe matter consisted, if you zoomed in, you know, really deeply, it consisted of little particles. So it was comfortable, I guess, for him to think of of, of photons, of light, as, as as also particles. 
I don't think he used the word photon, but he thought light was made up of particles. What is that theory? There's a special word for that it starts with a C. I just saw it. Like I, it's it's killing me. It's on the tip of my tongue. The corpuscular theory. Of yes, light. yes, that is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. because he 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 said light consists of corpuscles. So little. It comes, I guess, from the Latin corpus is body, and so there were little bodies of light. So little particles of light. Mm -hmm. Yep. And around the, around that time, there uh, was a Dutch scientist, uh, Christian Huygens, or as uh, we like to pronounce it in English, Huygens. And uh, he, he was convinced that, no, light was actually uh, made of waves. And so mm -hmm. a lot of phenomena of classical, so when I say classical, I mean not quantum. Uh, a lot of classical phenomena surrounding light, such as diffraction and, and uh, refraction, reflection, could be explained better by a wave theory of light. So diffraction, for example, if you have a slit, and you, or, or a tiny hole and, uh, and light passes through that hole. Instead of continuing moving in the, uh, propagating in the direction that it was propagating in before, it starts, it sort of shoots out in every direction from that little hole. And that's called diffraction. And you can, you can see diffraction patterns, which are bright and dark bands, depending on the shape of the, of the hole. They can be bands, they can be concentric circles. But you see that, and that cannot be explained with a, with a particle model for light. You need a wave model. And so around that time, they were making a lot of these experiments, and they were seeing things that couldn't quite be explained by Newton's corpuscular theory. So he had the guts to stand up to Newton and say, you know what, no, I think it's a theory. And he developed his theory. So it's funny how, how the perception of reality changes. At the time, I suppose Newton was more popular and better known, so people thought he had to be right. Then the experiments that people started making in the 1800s started giving credibility to, to Huygens' model, and, and, and people started thinking, well, maybe light is actually waves. And then in the 20th century, with the advent of quantum physics, we now know it's kind of both. And this ties into what you were saying before, the wave-particle duality. It's a particle, but it's also a wave. And what that means, we don't really know. We don't, even today, we can talk about the properties of light and how it behaves when it behaves as photons. And we can talk about how it behaves and when it behaves as waves. But we don't really know what it means that it's both things at the same time. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating, though? I, I find that fascinating if, if we don't know something, but we, we, we see it like we can uh, we can model the behavior. We can see it going on, but we don't know yet. That's pretty much all of the fundamental forces of physics. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we can we don't see it. Obviously, we observe its effects and, and we have these theories on it, but it's not it's given us what we have today, but we still don't fundamentally know why it works like that like why this this occurs like this and that's fascinating within itself that's right because it means there's still so much science left to do right yes i guess the rabbit hole right but the never-ending rabbit hole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that uh, that explains the universe so yeah let's yeah. let's talk about the electromagnetic spectrum a little bit yes because one thing that we should maybe mention is that the electromagnetic spectrum is kind of I don't want to say infinitely large, but it's a lot larger than what 
the, the normal person would, would suspect after just first getting introduced to physics. So do we want to start with radio waves? Uh, sure, yeah. So, so um, what we call light is actually, as you said, a small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's the bit that we can see with our eyes. There's so much more. So yeah, uh, that's my apologies. I forgot to say. So yeah, we talk about light, right? It's so it's such an egocentric term, right? Like because it a, we're, if you think about it, yeah, yeah, it's visible to us. So it's it's only what humans can see, but it's such a small bandwidth of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Yeah. It's so it's so tiny, but yet the electromagnetic spectrum is so large. So yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to say that it's such a an egocentric thing to uh, to say. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's uh, it's um, it's fine. And 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 yeah, it's a very yeah anthropocentric thing. Like humans, humans like to think that we are the center of the universe. So for the longest time, Earth was the center of the solar system. Well, the center of the universe, and they figured, well, not really. But then it was at the center of the solar system, and then the, then they said, well, not really. The sun is the center of the solar system, and now. Yeah, light is, strictly speaking, we should be calling all of the electromagnetic spectrum light. Yes. But we only refer to light as the bit that humans are capable of seeing. So, as you said, it's very, it's a bit egocentric. Uh, but, yeah, we have, uh, you, you mentioned wavelength. So, we have different, how do I say this, different parts or different regions of the electromagnetic spectrum yeah. separated by by wavelengths so if it goes from here to here then then we call it this if it goes from here to here we call it that so what we call radio waves are the longest wavelength uh electromagnetic waves mm -hmm. that, that there are so it's in the order of kilometers yeah so i would say this means the distance as you said between a crest and a crest which is a wavelength, is in the order of kilometers, even tens or hundreds of kilometers. That yeah. is really, really long. That is yeah. distances between cities. And these are the waves that radio stations emit. These, this is what your, uh, your car's radio picks up or, the, 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 or your TV antenna picks up for older TVs. I know everybody has a smart TV that connects to the internet these days, but uh, traditionally, traditionally TVs would have an antenna and, and that's what they would pick up. They would pick radio waves transmitted mm -hmm. from a, a station and that, that would encode sort of all of the information of sound and in the case of TV also images, uh, mm -hmm. what you see on the screen is encoded in those radio waves. Yes, they are huge. They are absolutely huge, and they are the least energetic of all as well. Right. So, it is um, the 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 energy of a wave is inversely proportional to its to its wavelength. So, the longer the wavelength, the less energetic it is. Mm -hmm. So, there's always this worry that we are surrounded by we we live in a sea of electromagnetic radiation. And the, the fact that, they, uh, the, the, that we use the word radiation makes people think of radioactivity and how that's bad for your health. It's actually not, because radio waves and, and um, communications waves, these um, mobile phone yes. communications and TV and radio and all of this, these are not energetic at all. These are 
millions of times less energetic than the that what we call visible light yes. and that isn't energetic at all we we don't take damage to our eyes from normal light i mean unless you look directly at the sun or a laser but normally when you see things your eyes are not damaged so now imagine waves that are a million times less energetic i should say a million squared so that is 10 to the 12 times less energetic right I know yeah. we talked about this offset a little bit and right after the radio wave uh, section of the electromagnetic spectrum, you get microwaves yeah. and um, the, the fun story behind microwaves and why we use microwave ovens is because there was a famous experiment. I can't remember what the, the famous experiment was, but um, a man that was working on the on the research team had a candy bar in his pocket, a chocolate bar. And as he was working, he noticed that uh, the, the chocolate bar became liquidous <laughs> and they were like, yeah, this is a good idea. So the really cool thing about microwaves to get a perspective, a human perspective is you can tell how large these uh, waves are just by looking at the circles in the, the cover, right? That's how large the waves are. It destructively interferes the waves from coming out of the microwave oven. So if you wanted to get a size perspective, just look in your kitchen. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So we have microwaves. Microwaves is a really big region of the EM spectrum. It so is. you have long wave microwaves, uh, which are on the order of meters of wavelength. Now these are not the ones in, the, in your microwave oven. The ones in the microwave oven are, as you said, of the order of centimeters or a few millimeters. Yeah. Um, that's that's a wavelength again. The the distance between crests. Uh, so so these are the waves that interact most strongly with water molecules, and that is why they heat up your food. Yes. So they are very strongly absorbed by by the water molecules in, in in food, and this absorption means a conversion of energy from one type to another. We'll talk about that a little later on, but. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what is happening here is the microwaves are being transformed from electromagnetic energy into thermal energy. So, and so the water molecules heat up, and then all the rest of the molecules making up food heat up. Yeah. Uh, this this is how how microwave ovens work. Yes. Uh, then then after microwaves, if you go to slightly shorter wavelengths, so you have microns which is uh, one millionth of a meter, all the way up to millimeters, uh, you have infrared. So yes. if you have millimeters, there's far infrared. If you have about 100 microns, that's mid-infrared. And then at, at around between maybe one and 10 microns is the near-infrared. This is what we put out as heat. Yes. So all objects, because they are not at zero temperature, radiate electromagnetic energy. So the sun radiates light that is the uh, visible light that we can see and it also radiates a lot of uh, uv which we'll talk about later on and infrared mm -hmm. but objects that are at around room temperature you know anywhere between minus a few tens of degrees and plus a few tens of degrees or even a few hundreds of degrees so things that are at reasonable human scale temperatures things on earth they radiate all the time, and because they are less hot than things like the sun, they radiate less energetic light. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, 
less energetic light is light of longer wavelengths. So we don't emit visible light because we're not that hot, we're not that uh, high temperature, I should say. Yes. Um, uh, but we emit infrared light. And so cameras or animals like snakes that are able to see infrared light are basically acting as heat sensors. Yes. So they can see things that are hotter because they emit more infrared light than things that are colder. Right. Another good tidbit is the, the fact of how the earth is actually, you know, how the earth gets heated. Typically, whenever we, we consider heat, where we think that it just it just comes from it just comes from the sun. It does come from, from the sun, but it's not in what you think. It's it's what the earth is then radiating after interacting with the solar radiation from the sun. So this, the radiation that comes from the sun is typically uh, predominantly is, is ultraviolet. And then when it interacts with, with the earth, it then radiates back in infrared. And uh, that's where we get our heat from. That's why that's why the, the peaks of heat in the day aren't uh, high noon. It's usually like, you know, 2, 3 p.m. because it takes time for that interaction to then allow the release of of infrared radiation. So a lot of people don't know that. And, and I find that a, a really cool, fun fact. It and is, of course, that's dependent upon, you know, the landscape, too. You know, uh, we'll talk about reflection and absorption. So, <laughs> yeah, but it, it is, you said, it's uh, the fact that it's not at uh, 12 p.m., the fact that it's not noon, is, is an interesting fact that always puzzled me as a child. So it's nice yeah. to know where it comes from. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's comforting. So what's so special about visible light, right? Because I didn't think about this until now, but it's mainly based upon our, our evolution. The reason why we are so keen to the visible light spectrum, the Roy G. Biv of the electromagnetic spectrum. And um, so apparently, I did some digging on this, and the reason why we see visible light is, is based upon the for the majority of our uh, existence in our lineage, we were in water. And um, visible, the visible light spectrum is the best part of the spectrum that propagates in water. So that's why we're so keen to seeing visible light. I think that's a fantastic, well, I mean, if you're an evolution denier, that, that's, that's all you need, but, <laughs> it's, <laughs> but it's, it's a fantastic piece of evidence. Right, I think that's awesome. It is. It is. I I, I agree. I I I had not thought about it as in, in evolutionary terms. I as a physicist, I guess I'm biased towards more um, well physical chemical terms. Uh, but it makes sense, as you said, for something that evolved from things that lived the majority of their lifetime in 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 water uh, or the majority of things that have existed on earth have existed in water uh it makes sense for for it to be adapted it's like it reminds me of a quote from douglas adams who wrote the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and some other stuff but that's probably what people know him for and i'm i'm gonna mangle up his quote completely because i don't remember it but the gist of it is he was actually not talking about the hitchhiker's guide he was giving a speech about evolution and human centrism and how humans are so egotistic and he 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 said some people always think earth is the way it is because it's the perfect environment for humans to survive in or let's not say humans let's say for the life that exists on it to survive mm -hmm. on the conditions are perfect it must have been 
created purposely somehow to accommodate for things that are alive. And it's actually the other way around. He compares that to a puddle. He says, imagine there's a hole in the ground and it rains and a puddle forms and says, look at this hole. It fits me perfectly. It's exactly the same shape as me. It must have been made for me. And that's obviously ridiculous. The shape of the puddle depends on the shape of the hole. So the characteristics of things that are that live on Earth depend on the characteristics of Earth, depend yeah. on the conditions that existed on Earth when life arose and that exist now on Earth. Yep. Have existed, you know, throughout the process of evolution that has led from the first life forms to today, to what exists today. If you look at some other planet, the life on that planet is going to be perfectly adapted to it, not because the planet was made for it, but because it sprung up in that planet. Yeah. On that planet. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same basic building blocks. It's just different outside parameters, different influences on the fact of, of evolution. You yeah. know, it's, um, I guess, uh, different guesses of adaptations that either work or don't work in the situation that you're in. And uh, a lot of things haven't worked. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just had a, I just did a podcast on Monday, and I talked about how anthropo, how we have come up in the thermal minimum of a Milankovitch cycle, and we haven't, as a society, we went from a few million to seven point nine billion in that small thermal minimum. Imagine whenever we have the effects of climate change and the natural Milankovitch cycle, it's going to be a different, a different, a different world, a different world. So it'd be interesting. Like, like we're talking about climate change now. I'm also thinking, I know this has nothing to do with me, but say 30,000 years from now, when we're at the thermal maximum of the Milankovitch cycles, What's it going to be like then? <laughs> like, woo! <laughs> it's already way too hot for my tastes. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people like it. Uh, some people don't. Uh, I'm. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I'm. I'm I like uh, my my temperature fluctuations and you know sub ninety degrees. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we're here in Arizona and we're, we're loving life. But okay, so do we want to cover the rest of the magnetic or the electromagnetic spectrum? Yeah, I know. really quickly, because I think I think part of the rest is something that a lot of people could relate to. So right after visible, we've got UV, ultraviolet. So that's as you said, the a large part of what we get from the sun is UV. And we've got near UV and extreme UV. And extreme UV is so energetic that it is used to up destroy, you know, utterly destroy any kinds of well, life, I should say, I was going to say microbes, but all life would be destroyed by extreme UV. So it's what's used for to sterilize uh, surgery rooms, for example. Yes. But that's, I'm getting ahead of myself. So near UV is what we get from the sun. And that is already energetic enough to destroy some of our DNA in our cells, which is why if you spend way too long at the beach and you don't use sunblock, sunscreen, um, you might develop cancer. Uh, at least, at the very least, you're going to get skin burns uh, because because this UV radiation is very energetic. So it's no longer nice, comfy, harmless, visible light. It's strong, energetic UV light or UV radiation that we can't see, but it's there. And it, 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 um, 
it harms our cells and the right. DNA in them. Things like glass um, are opaque to, to UV, even though they're transparent or visible, they're opaque to UV, which is why if you're in your house, you don't develop skin, skin cancer, even if you're right by the window taking the sun, assuming the window is closed. If you use things like sunscreen, that, that, that also blocks UV. And then, then you have extreme UV, which, as I said, is used to sterilize this. We're already in the 10 nanometers. So that is, that is a, a 10 nanometer is 100 million times smaller than a meter. Yep. And that's, that's the So that is already microscopic. There's no way you can see that. A micron is about maybe the width of a human hair is between 1 and 10 microns. And then yes. a 1,000 times smaller than that is between one and 10 nanometers. And that's where you get extreme UV. Yes. And, yes. Then, and then wavelength of, uh, if you go to even smaller wavelengths, smaller than a nanometer, you get X-rays. And that mm -hmm. is, everyone is familiar with X-rays because everyone will at least not necessarily have had an X-ray taken, but everyone knows what it is. And you know, you go to the doctor, you stand behind a thing and you get X-rays that um, is, absorbed by your bo your bones, but it goes right through the rest of your, the, the old soft tissue in the body. And so right. that's how they can take an image, an X-ray right. of your skeleton. Right, and it's then, small enough to not have a, a particular interaction with your with your cells, right? Yeah, exactly, unless, unless they're very, very densely packed, as in the case of bone. Right, right, sorry, continue. Yeah, and, and a very, opposite end of the, uh, uh, the EM spectrum from radio waves is the most energetic um, waves of all, elect most energetic electromagnetic radiation of all, and these are gamma rays. Yes. And um, so if you, if you don't know, in, in space, the biggest and meanest and most energetic things are black holes. And when black holes interact with each other or they swallow stars, um, and everything <laughs> that's going around the stars, they emit gamma rays. It's such an energetic event that it emits these super powerful bursts of radiation. And those are energetic enough to completely vaporize a planet. If we yeah. had a black hole that were to emit a gamma ray burst in the direction of Earth, we wouldn't even notice. We would just be instantly vaporized. Right. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of cool. Like, uh, and I think we missed. There's a there's a really interesting part of the spectrum that's like I can't remember. It's it's, it's like it's like at the end of, of X ray and and then gamma ray as well. Is is it? It's so small that it that it, it can make changes to your DNA. It can it can disrupt your DNA, which is kind. Of, well, I guess you're just your genome in general. You mm -hmm. know, um, I think that's that's quite fascinating in itself. And there's a lot of like speculation i mean there's that's always an, a, a possibility on the table whenever we have something that goes wrong with our genome or we lose a gene and and obviously it's it's a joke but like it's small enough that it that it could actually uh disrupt uh, our genome or just any species genome which is pretty cool yeah because yeah. now you're talking about the 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 wavelength is on the order of the size of uh, an atom exactly Exactly. Yeah, I wanted to say that the, I guess, gamma rays can go down to, from what we humans have measured, I need to not say we because I'm not involved, but, <laughs> but 10 picometers, which is 10 to the negative 15th meters. That's 
way less than a hydrogen atom. So a proton, it's, it's a lot smaller than a, than a proton, which is crazy, which is crazy. crazy. So last thing that I want to talk about before we go into commercial break is that how is light made? Because we've talked about what light is. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a particle. It has, it has a duality with, with, uh, with particles and waves and, you know, it's, it's energetic, it's, it's massless, but you know, how does that happen? You know, where does it come from? And it's really, it's quite interesting because if you add energy to any system, what happens in the universe is that the most probabilistic outcome is to, is to undergo entropy, the dissipation of, of energy. And the most probabilistic way to do that is to give off light, which is energy, you know, cause we're trying, you know, say you got a, a cup of coffee here and uh, you know, it, it's hot, right? But then over time, it, it becomes cool. It's because it's undergoing entropy. It's trying to become, you know, in a lower state of energy. So that's really what light is. And then, you know, as we talked about it, the, the energy changes, you know, so it depends on how much energy you add into the system. So the more energy I add into the system, the more energetic the light is. So that's whenever you start to move towards the, uh, the end of the spectrum where gamma ray is at. Now, if I, if I use less energy added to the system, then you're going to move more red shifted towards, I guess, the left side of, of, the, of the spectrum towards radio waves. So whenever, I, excuse me, whenever I say red shifted, we're talking the egocentric term of, of moving uh, less energetically on the, on the spectrum. If I say blue shifted, we're talking more energetically towards, you know, the gamma ray portion of the spectrum. May I just add a tiny, tiny comment to that? Okay, because you, you mentioned these words, redshift and blue shift, and they're really important words in terms of when you, when you talk about the energy of, the, of an electromagnetic wave. So the, I, I, we didn't go through this when we saw, when we briefly touched on visible light when we were going through the spectrum, but visible light obviously contains all of the different colors of the rainbow, and all, you know, all the colors of the light that we can see. Uh, why do we call infrared infrared? So infra is beneath or underneath is Latin for underneath. So yes. it means it's underneath red in the energy spectrum. So if you go to lower wavelengths, so higher energies, you've got infrared and then red. So red is the longest wavelength of the visible light that we can see. And so, mm -hmm. and thus is the, the least energetic. And then you go through, you know, orange, yellow, green, and so on. And you get to blue or violet. We tend to say blue because violet is kind of the very distant end point of the visible spectrum. But most of the least energetic, shortest, sorry, most energetic, shortest wavelength end of the visible portion of the EM spectrum is mm -hmm bluish green slash blue yes uh, so when you see a blue shifted it's shifted towards blue or towards or it, it doesn't even have to be towards blue because if you've got uv which is already beyond blue you so ultraviolet it's mm -hmm. beyond it's on top of violet right so so in the in, in the energy spectrum right so more energetic than violet uh, and violet is beyond blue so when you say blue shifted, it means shifted towards shorter wavelengths and therefore higher energies. Yes, that makes perfectly. I mean, ultra, right? Ultra is, is something is a, is a word that you think it's like a higher, um, a higher order. So ultraviolet, it's it's above violet. If you want to talk about it, you know, top to bottom rather than left to right, I guess that's a that's a really good way to put it. 
So, yeah, so that's um, that's kind of the basics of, of light and the electromagnetic spectrum. We could probably talk about that for, for 10 hours if we really wanted to dissect it. Uh, I understand that, that people have shorter attention spans today, but, you know, we're, we're doing our best here because physics is, is really interesting. And uh, you can go in into, geez, an infinite amount of rabbit holes and, and get stuck there for an infinity. <laughs> so, that is true. That is yeah. true. So we're going to take a quick commercial break here, but when we come back, we're going to kind of talk about how light interacts with different substances. So, hey, stick around and find out. I have some exciting news. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics have teamed up to create Ecolight Apparel. Ecolight Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol, such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. Each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code, and when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite apparel, the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. Ecolite, clothing done right. Hey there, we're back for the second segment of Let There Be Light. So I'm with my man here, Alex, and we're going to be talking about the interaction of light with substances. So there are two actions that take place when light comes in contact with a material made of mass or made of mass particles, or, you know, just say simply a desk or a mirror. And that is scattering or absorption. So maybe we could start with scattering. Alex, would you like to take it from there? Sure. Um, scattering is essentially a redistribution of the electromagnetic energy. Essentially, what this means is if you have light that is coming from a certain direction, it has a certain spatial distribution, whatever that may be. If it's a laser, maybe it's a very thin pencil-like uh, region that it occupies. If it's light from a bulb, then it's sort of all around us, or from the sun, it's sort of all around us. But then when it interacts with something, with matter, with the atoms and molecules, it's redistributed. So uh, if you think about it as photons, all the photons get deviated from their original path into different paths. Some of them continue down the same path, and we call that forward scattering. 
which means just scattering in the forward direction or in the same direction that it was originally traveling in. But essentially, you have scattering in every different possible direction. Okay. And, and depending on the properties of the atom or molecule or particle that the light interacted with, it's scattered more strongly in different directions. That makes sense. So what are some everyday applications that, you know, Joe Schmo or, or Cindy May is going to see and, and be like, oh, that's, that's light scattering. So what comes to your mind? Well, there's a bunch that I could talk about. I, I guess one that maybe a lot of people might have heard of is Rayleigh scattering and me scattering. So Rayleigh scattering is scattering by very, very small particles. Smaller, when I say small, it means smaller than the wavelength. So when we talk about visible light, which is a few hundred nanometers uh, in wavelength, then we're talking about things smaller than that. And smaller than a few hundred nanometers is nanometers or tens of. So that is about the size of, of a molecule. A big molecule is maybe 100 nanometers. Most molecules are maybe around one nanometer. So things that are very small compared to the wavelength they they produce Rayleigh scattering, and what this does is this this is shorter wavelengths are more more strongly scattered than longer wavelengths. So in the visible part of the spectrum, blue light or violet light is more strongly scattered than yellow or red light, and this is responsible for the color of the sky. The sky is blue because the sunlight interacts with all the molecules of the the atmosphere of earth is made of or the air is made of and because they scatter they scatter all colors of light but because they scatter blue much more strongly than yellow or red basically that, that's basically why we see blue all around during the day mm -hmm. now at sunrise or sunset you still also have Rayleigh scattering but why the sky is sort of orangey and red is there is a lot more atmosphere that the, the the light is going through. So instead of just, you can imagine Earth as a sphere, more or less, and the atmosphere is a very, very thin shell of air surrounding that sphere. So if you shine light directly down, so perpendicularly to the surface of the sphere, like you have at, at, at noon. High noon, at yes. noon, Yeah, high noon, then, then, then it, there's very little amount of air that the, the light is actually going through. So right. relatively few molecules of air that it's interacting with. Right. But it's a sunrise and sunset, it has to go almost tangentially to the surface of, of, of this shell of air. So it's interacting with a lot more air. So all the blue light, which is scattered more strongly, is scattered away and lost. And what reaches our eyes is what is left, which is essentially orange and red. And this is why the sky is orange and red during sunrise and sunset. That makes and sense. The other one that I mentioned is uh, me scattering. Yes. Yeah. So this is scattering by larger particles. So if you have particles that are maybe on the order of the wavelength, so, so like water vapor or yeah, bigger than that. So a few microns, as you said, water vapor, typically a water Water vapor consists of little, little droplets of water, uh, which are anywhere between five and 50 microns in size. Yeah. So that is bigger than the wavelength. So it, there's no Rayleigh scattering there. It's all me scattering. And that does not have a preferential wavelength. It scatters all wavelengths equally. 
So this is why, for example, water vapor or fog or clouds look white. They're white because white is a combination, an equal measure of all colors, and it scatters all colors or all wavelengths of light equally. That makes sense. So one more thing that, that I really, I think we should touch on is um, yeah. why the, the sun is not actually yellow. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> thinks the sun's yellow. It's not yellow, it's, it's, it's white. <laughs> white, yeah. It's white because we, it emits light of, uh, as we said, radiation of all the colors in the visible spectrum and also a bunch of UV and also a bunch of infrared. Right. But we are not able to detect that with our eyes. We can only see the visible. But because of the way black body radiation works, so basically black body is a body that absorbs as much light as it emits. Uh, and this is basically stars. Every star is what we call in physics a black body. We yeah. call it black because it absorbs all of the light it receives. But obviously it's not black because it's also emitting a lot of light. It's yes. the way this works is there's the maximum, even regardless of where the maximum is, so the maximum light that it emits is at a certain wavelength, but nearby wavelengths are also very, very strongly emitted. So the sun emits an almost equal amount of light of every color. So as you said, it's not yellow, it's what? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I just wanted to put it out there. I mean, these are some things, these are some like uh, like phenomena that, that are never explained to, to, to the lay person. You know, they're, they just go around thinking that the sun is, is yellow you, right. their entire lives. So it's exciting. Uh, yeah, if you look at a that. child's drawing of a sunny day, the sun is always yellow. Yeah, I, uh, I taught my niece that uh, <laughs> a, a, month, a month ago and she blew her mind and now she now she draws <laughs> white white suns <laughs> i'm sure it drives all her teachers uh, crazy oh i'm sure uh, but that's great <laughs> she's like no 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 my my, my uncle knows physics <laughs> it's okay <laughs> so that's exciting so so we talked about um we talked about scattering effects maybe we could talk about a little bit about ref refraction and then yeah. also a little bit about reflection yeah, so refraction and reflection are things that you might be familiar with and you might not have thought of as scattering phenomena, but eventually they are. So uh, there is what we call a refractive index. All materials have a refractive index. And essentially what this is, is light travels more slowly inside a material than it does in vacuum. So this 299 change that we have, uh, uh, 300,000 kilometers per second. That is the speed of light in vacuum. But when it enters a material, it travels more slowly. And the ratio between the speed of light in vacuum and speed of light in material, which is a number that is also always greater than one because in the material it travels more slowly, um, is what's called the material's refractive index. And so what this means is when, when light enters a material, it also bends, it also changes direction. Yep. So, uh, and this is all because the shortest possible path between the source and, the, and any given point is not a straight line because it travels at different speeds before entering the material and after entering the material, it's actually this bent trajectory that it follows. 
And this principle in physics is essentially boils down to the universe is lazy. Things always take the shortest possible path between two points. <laughs> so uh, because the universe is lazy, and this includes light, the shortest possible path implies that light has to bend inside a material. And this is why, for example, if you look at a glass with water and uh, you put a straw in it, it looks as though the straw were broken. The straw is obviously not broken, but it looks that, that way because the light coming from the straw to your eye, so reflected from the sun, uh, sorry, coming from the sun or from the light bulb at the ceiling or wherever, and uh, reflecting off of the straw and coming to your light takes certain path. But the light that is reflected off the bit of the straw that is inside the water or submerged in the water takes a different path takes this bent path because it travels a bit through the water and then a bit through the air between, well, a bit through the glass that the glass is made of and then a bit yeah. through the air between the glass and your eyes. And so because it's, it, travels through a, uh, it travels down a bent path, it looks as though it were coming from a different position, a slightly different position than it actually is. And that's why this tool looks broken. Well, it's also why if you throw a penny into a swimming pool it looks as though the the swimming pool were shallower than it actually is this is because the light is is being bent as it comes out of the water and back into the air above the swimming pool and then to right your right and a lot of people are probably <laughs> whoever's listening to this or watching is probably like Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, you just got to study physics for a couple of years, and and then you'll you'll know how to pick up a penny, you know, out of the fountain wherever you're at. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll you'll be able to actually accurately know where the penny is instead of fumbling around where it is not. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so what, the reason I say these are scattering phenomena are because the refractive index is ultimately an expression of scattering by the molecules forming the material. So right. the water in this case. Um, the water molecules are scattering and also absorbing, but we'll talk about that a little yeah. later on. They're scattering the light. So if the light, instead of following a straight trajectory, follows this, it hits a, a, a molecule and then it bounces off at an angle and then it bounces off at a different angle when it reaches a different molecule and so on. It obviously takes longer to travel through that, that material consisting of molecules than it would if there were no molecules present, if it were in vacuum, which right. is why it travels more slowly in, in the material than it does in vacuum. That makes perfect sense. So I guess the last one is, um, is reflection. We talked about yeah. refraction there a little bit. So would you like to talk about reflection? Yeah, reflection is, again, also a, a manifestation of the scattering by the molecules. It's what happens when the molecules scatter in the backwards direction, so back in the direction where the light came from. Yep. Or if it, if it hits them at an angle, then if it hits, for example, the surface of a mirror at an angle, then it bounces off at the same angle in the, in the opposite direction, but at the same angle. So yep. this is called backscattering. And this is what you have in a mirror. Uh, you have a very, very smooth surface of a very highly reflective material. So different materials have different refractive indices and different properties, the way they interact with light. And some reflect more than others, some scatter more than others. And so if you have a very, uh, for example, a metallic surface, they, they, they scatter light very, very strong. 
that's actually why they look shiny. Uh, so if you have a thin metallic surface, like a silver surface, for example, as you've got in a mirror, uh, and it's very, very smooth, you see specular reflection. So that is a reflection where the image that is formed by the light reflected is not distorted very strongly. And you have diffuse reflection, as in the case of, well, objects that are not very reflective, objects that are opaque. So, for example, if I take, I don't know, this paper tissue, that looks white and opaque because it's reflecting light, but the, because the surface is not smooth at all, it's very rough, the, the light is sort of being reflected back at all sorts of different angles. And so we don't see a very well-formed image of ourselves when we look at a paper tissue the way the way we do when we look at a mirror. Oh, okay, that's good. Okay, so we've we've covered refract refraction reflection and uh, we'll just different scattering effects. Yeah. So that was that was one of the of the two types of behavior. So let's talk about absorption. Yeah. Well, absorption is just as we said. Scattering is a redistribution, so a change of the direction of propagation of the electromagnetic energy. Absorption is a change of the type of energy. So when something absorbs electromagnetic energy, so it absorbs light, it absorbs a photon, uh, there's a saying in physics uh, you might have heard of, which is energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's only changed. Um, this is what it's all about. You don't, when something absorbs a photon, the photon is not just gone simply changed from something that was carrying electromagnetic energy to some other kind of energy. It might be kinetic, so a solar sail, for example, absorbs photons and then it moves. Um, or uh, things like Earth absorb photons from the sun and they heat up. Yes, So this like metal in, in, in the sunlight. Yeah, so this conversion of, of, of light into thermal energy, heat, or kinetic energy, his movement is called absorption. So this, this is essentially why it's always hotter in sunlight than in the shade. Unless you live in Finland or, you know, very distant polar regions of the world, in which case it's equally cold everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Okay. So, I mean, this is kind of like what we were talking about a little bit earlier, like how, you know, how Earth's heat comes from the sun. And then also, you know, the, the principle of microwave ovens and then also how lasers work, right? That's right. That's right. So lasers, what we do is, it's essentially the, it starts out as the opposite and then the process becomes absorption and emission. So as you said, way back at the beginning of this uh, uh, little chat that we've, uh, we have going on, light is the smallest amount of energy that you can transfer. Right. Mm -hmm. So say I have a material made of a bunch of atoms and I give it a voltage. I give it electric energy from I plug it in and, and I give it electric energy. And at either end of this, basically, uh, usually it's a tube, a long, narrow tube of material. And at either end, I have a mirror. And at one end, it's a perfect mirror. At the other end, it's an imperfect mirror. So some small amount of, of light goes through, but most of it is reflected back. Right. So at the beginning, I don't have any light. I only have voltage. But this electric energy, it excites the atoms of, of the, or the molecules of the material of this narrow tube that I've got, which is the lasing material. So because they become more energetic 
And as you said, entropy has to increase. It wants to go back down to the the non-energetic, lowest possible state. The way it does that is by emitting light. Yes. And because you're you're exciting all of the atoms at the same time, they emit light, I wouldn't say at the same time, but in phase, which means it is light, it's all traveling in the same direction, and it's all the the energy of all the little photons that are being emitted by this material has added up as the square of the number of, of photons. So if it's not in phase, it's just proportional to the number of photons, but because it is in phase, it is uh, proportional to the square of the number of photons. So there's a lot of energy going on in there. Yeah. And, and these some of these photons will go out, come out of the imperfect mirror. They will mm-hmm. come out on that end. Some of them will be reflected and then they'll hit other atoms and re-excite them. So uh, imagine you've got one of the atoms of that, that material. It already went down to the lowest possible state by emitting a photon, but then it's re-excited because it absorbs a photon, right? So then it wants to go back down. It's like, no, why did you give me more energy? I said I wanted to be in the lowest possible state, so it emits another photon. This time yeah. in the opposite direction, and you've got the perfect mirror on that end, so it bounces back, and so on. And that's why you've got continuous lasing. So a very continuous collimator, which means it's all traveling in a narrow pencil beam of light in the same direction. And it's very highly energetic light. Mm. This is what a laser is. And it's all basically absorption and re-emission of photons. Oh, okay. What part of the electromagnetic spectrum is, is lasers? We typically have uh, visible light lasers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, those are the shiny ones that we can see. Even I guess I guess that was a bad question of mine. I should have I should have uh, pulled that one back. <laughs> say it's a bad question because we also have UV lasers and infrared lasers, and they're used yeah. in industry or for highly precise or highly specific, I should say, um, physics experiments. Right, right, right. Yeah. Jeez, I need to take myself back. To, to college, I guess, <laughs> after that question. <laughs> it wasn't a bad question before. Sometimes I got to play dumb. That's all right. <laughs> uh, I guess uninformed. Another interesting uh, phenomenon that, that, uh, that is essentially boils down to, to absorption of light is vision. Oh, yes. So we see things because we are constantly absorbing light. The cells in our retinas are constantly absorbing light. The visible light to us, so from blue to red, from 400 nanometers to 800 nanometers, that comes from the sun or from light bulbs or from candles or from lasers, mm-hmm. and that is um, scattered and reflected by all of the objects and substances around us. We see, we absorb all these photons, and that is why why you can see. Yeah, you know, thinking about this a little bit, what would life be like? if we saw a much broader portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, we saw infrared and UV, X-ray, gamma ray, you know, micro radio, just imagine how busy that would be. <laughs> It'd be noisier. It'd be busy as hell. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't you, like, that's, that's where it comes to like, um, simplicity is, is, is quite beautiful. You know, um, it's beautifully simplistic, I guess, is, is, a, is a great way to put it, because just imagine the headache you would have <laughs> of seeing somebody's heat and, um, you know, just 
just the also the visible portion of them and just oh my goodness yeah it would be crazy i you've probably seen it and not you can google them uh, these images of distant galaxies that we've taken with well, humanity has taken with different different kinds of telescopes and there are telescopes that work in the visible light and they essentially see what we would see if we were out there orbiting earth and mm -hmm. we could very very far away if we if our eyes were super sensitive but there's also radio wave telescopes and and uh there's this telescopes that can see many different parts of the em spectrum and so they see things we can't see then what they do is they convert that by a computer into mm -hmm. images that the the the, the, the uh, they color code them so they they convert that into something that we can see in the colors of visible light that our eyes are sensitive to now imagine if you could take all of those images taken different parts of the em spectrum and combine them put them on top of each other and see things that way it would be uh, super noisy oh yeah <laughs> for darn sure i mean yeah it's beautifully simplistic but makes us also oblivious right because we spend a great portion of humanity just not seeing what we should be seeing and uh, now with you know technology we can actually look uh, hopefully with with uh, the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, we can see farther into the past towards the early, early stages uh, of the universe, something that's super, super red shifted. Right. Uh, we, needed to, we needed to upgrade our uh, our telescopes, our satellites to be able to actually see something a little bit farther, you know, in, into the past. So that's right. And if I may go off on a really brief tangent here, the reason telescopes allow us to see into the past and the farther you can see, the more distantly into the past you can see is the, the speed is because of the speed of light, because of the speed of light. So because light does not travel at infinite speed, even though it might it may seem that way to us because it's so fast that to us it's instantaneous. Yeah. It's actually a finite speed, this 299 and change. Uh, meters per second so so the farther away an object is the more time it takes for light from it to reach us to reach our eyes or our telescopes so things that are farther away from from earth we see them as they were a longer time ago yes exactly and and another thing is i there's two things actually one is you know a lot of people still don't understand the light year portion right you know say proximate century some world in proximate century is you know four light years away well it takes four years for light to travel there at the speed of light the 2.998 times 10 to the 8 meters per second what have you and and, and another thing on to on to add on to that the second portion is what a very strange number like why wasn't it three times 10 to the eight why does it have to be 2.997 and change and we round it you know like that's such that's so crazy it, it's back to the whole why you know we there's a lot of whys to be to be answered in physics still like why is the speed of light that awkwardly you know like why why is it like that uh yeah, why is the uncomfortable Right. Why is why is Planck's constant the way it is? Why do we have these these very interesting numbers? Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, it boils down to to again this 
egocentric way that humans have of looking at things. We like units that are sort of the same size and shape as us. So we measure mm. things in meters or feet or yards or, or because these are comfortable sizes, these are comfortable uh, units, right. you know? It's comfortable to be able to say, oh, I'm six feet tall, or that thing is two meters in length. Uh, it would be very uncomfortable to say, well, that is 5,826.3 whatever units of length. That's the, so, so we make units that are sort of the same size as us. And then when we try to measure the fundamental constants of the universe with those units, it obviously ends up having weird numbers instead of normal numbers like one, two, three, pi, right. uh, 10, you know, it boils that down to sense. that. That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm going to leave the the listener watcher uh, with this thought experiment. Like we just kind of brought up is what do you think life would be like if you could interpret with the naked eye more than just the visible light spectrum? So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's going to be a special portion of this podcast where Alex is going to shed some light on his quite revolutionary research involving, well, light. So stick around and find out. <laughs> Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. All right, we're back here for the last segment of Let There Be Light. And we're going to talk about, well, I'm not going to talk about it. Alex is going to talk about <laughs> what he does on, on a daily basis. So uh, we'll just cut to the chase. And Alex, please take it away. Let us know what you're working on. What I work on is called effective medium theory. And what it does is you look at the way the particles that make up a certain material scatter light. So it's all about light scattering. You look at the way they scatter light, and then you say, well, what if this were not a heterogeneous material made up of different particles of whatever size and whatever shape and whatever orientation? What if it were a homogeneous medium? Like if we go back and look at it from very, very far away, like water, for example, we don't say water consists of molecules. We say water is just this continuous homogeneous medium that has these optical properties. So for more interesting materials than water, for example, blood, what would its optical properties have to be in order to interact with light the way it does if it were homogeneous? What would its refractive index be? In blood, for example, you have blood plasma, which is uh, this yellowish liquid, 
it's the bit that makes blood liquid, right? Uh, that's about half of it or just over half of it. And then the other half is mostly, mostly red blood cells and then a, a small amount of white blood cells and platelets and whatnot. These, this is obvious, very obviously not homogeneous. Now, if you look at it microscopically, you see a very homogeneous red liquid coming out of your wound in your arm, right? So it doesn't, you don't see the individual cells. So what optical, what average optical properties do you have? So you've got the plasma with its own properties, the red blood cells with their own properties, white blood cells with their own properties. But you see sort of the average, the, the sum of all of these effects of all of these different components of blood. And that is what makes blood look the way it does. It looks like a very opaque, turbid, red, dark red liquid, mm -hmm. right? Whereas right. blood plasma is actually yellow and white blood cells are white. So why does it look the way it does, right? So this is what I try to determine. And the way you do this is you look at all the different components of that. You look at the plasma, you look at the red blood cells, you look at the white blood cells, and you see how each component individually scatters light. And then you take all of these components together and you say, well, if this is what this does to light, and this is what that does to the light that the first bit did this to, then, uh, then it's a complicated problem, but I think it's a pretty problem because it allows you to determine the optical properties of very, very complicated materials made of different subcomponents. Now, I'm trying to think about this in a lay aspect. Now, what are the implications to this? Do you think that, that we can now image, we would be able to image our, our blood by this? And then also, what portion of the spectrum are you targeting, I guess? Right. Two-part question. Right. So, so the second part I'll answer first because that's the easiest to answer, I guess. I mostly work with visible and a tiny bit of near-infrared, but mostly visible. Okay. So anywhere between 400 nanometers and maybe a micron or two. Okay, so wait, you narrowed it down to this part of the spectrum. Did you start like really broad or did you have people, you know, someone like a point to you like, hey, this is kind of like, or did you just have a feeling like you knew like this is kind of, you know, what we're going to have to deal with? I sort of had a feeling that it would be interesting to use visible light simply because it is what is visible to us as humans. And also, once I started working on it, I, I, I realized because of the scale of things, it's a good portion of the electromagnetic spectrum to work with. I mean, you kind of don't want to work with UV when you're working with biological things, because UV is very energetic, as we already said. And you don't want to be destroying all of your biological material when you work on it. Now, that's a problem for the experimentalists. So I work on the theoretical side. But mm -hmm. I want the people to be able to look at what I do and maybe if they're going to design an experiment around it or to, to prove or disprove anything that I come up with, then then it has to be something that is feasible and preferably not very destructive or disruptive to the sample, right? So you don't want to right. use UV. And because of the size of these things, so blood cells tend to be around a few microns in size mm -hmm. so red blood cells are about eight microns in diameter white blood cells are a bit bigger maybe 10 or 12. there's actually different kinds of white blood cells but um so if you use a wavelength that is a little bit smaller than that then the optical properties become very interesting the way things that are slightly bigger than the, the, the wavelength scatter light is very comfortable to work in. It simplifies a lot of the uh, 
mathematical expressions. If you go to things that are much smaller than the wavelength, so if I were using um, radio waves, which have a wavelength of kilometers, and then the cells are just absolutely tiny compared to that. Well, first of all, they would probably not interact very strongly. Radio right, you get little information. Probably with, 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 yeah, with people and with cells. So yeah, you wouldn't have a lot of information that you could get out of that. So on the other hand, the mathematical expressions that, the, the, that are involved become super complicated. I could imagine so. so. This is why visible light is so good for this specific type of problem. Okay. Now I'm, I'm just thinking of some of the implications, like if this were to be, you know, used in application and thinking about like how thin your blood is, you know, what's your, what's your blood pressure? Um, what is the count of your, of your white blood cells possibly? Yeah. So you're looking at it, immune system. Like, are you having an immune deficiency? I'm sure there's other aspects. I'm not a health professional, so I can't tell you, but what <laughs> I'm hearing, if it's minimally invasive, I think that's revolutionary. I think that that's the idea. So it's still sort of early stages at the moment, but it's, that's the plan, that's the idea. That comes back to a bit of the first part of your two-part part question, the bit that I haven't answered yet. The application or intended applications of this is precisely to do diagnosis yeah. and minimally invasive diagnosis. So the way diagnosis is done nowadays, for example, if they want to look at your blood type, they take out a small bit of blood from your body and then they add whatever chemical to that. And I think if it turns purple, it's your type A. And if it turns brown, your type B. And if it turns whatever color, your type whatever. I, I don't know the specifics and I probably said that all wrong and it's not purple and brown. But what I mean I, is they add a chemical and they look at what, what happens or what the chemical reaction is. And obviously that blood is completely lost because it's got undergone a chemical reaction with some weird substance. You can't reuse it for something else. And the way diagnosis of blood diseases is done, if you have anemia or if you have uh, some kind of parasitic disease, they'll take out, a, well, a lot of that is based on symptoms, of course, but if they want to actually look at your blood and say, okay, this is 100% what you've got, or 80% likely the, this is what you've got, they'll take out a blood smear uh, uh, or a bit of blood and they'll put that on a microscope slide and look at it on, yeah. under the microscope. So the blood smear, there's actually a few problems with this approach. One of them is, I would say the most, the most problematic is it's done by eye. It's someone looking down the microscope and going, okay, we have this many cells of this type and cells look kind of roundish or kind of small or kind of big or kind of brown when they should be bright red or kind of sickle shaped. And so I think this is what this person's got. And that's why they've got those symptoms. Or I don't see enough of that type of white blood cell so their immune system is depressed. So I see too many, so they're probably fighting an infection. Another problem is they look at a very small region of that blood smear and they assume this all homogeneous that whatever they're looking at, if they move the microscope slide a little bit, they're going to look at basically the same thing, the same number of cells per unit volume or per unit area in that case. Right. So the way that is done is very destructive. You can't reuse the blood. The blood is ruined. A little bit subjective, I mean, medical personnel are experts at this. They're really good at looking at a blood sample and going, this is what this person has got. But there's still a human element to it. And they've yes. still got to go under the microscope and you still have to pay someone to look at that microscope and say, with all my years of expertise, I think this is what's going on. And then make some tests, or do some tests on the person. Right? Imagine if you could just shine a laser on it 
calculate a few numbers. So the refractive index, refractive index, we talked about this is the, the ratio between the speed of light and vacuum, the speed of light in the material, mm -hmm. but it's actually not constant. So for any given material, the refractive index is a function of wavelength. Something will have a different refractive index for blue light than will for red light and for infrared and for UV and for radio waves. Right, so if you could look at say blue, green, yellow, orange, and red, and infrared, so a few different wavelengths, and say this is the refractive index at this wavelength, this is the refractive index that wavelength, and so on. And you create a what is called a spectrum, which is basically a, a curve of this refractive index as a function of wavelength. Ah, just feed that to a computer, compare it to spectra you've obtained from healthy people and from people suffering from one type of anemia and from another type of anemia and from leukemia then you could instantly in a very minimally invasive way in a non-destructive way because all you did was shine a little bit of light onto the blood it doesn't have to be very energetic the laser doesn't have to burn all the cells so you could then reuse that blood for some other test agreed and then all you have to do is pull off the database control database and say this is what's different and this is what we've seen in the past. Exactly, exactly. And the refractive index is, as I mentioned earlier, manifestation of the scattering of light by all the different particles that constitute the material. So mm -hmm. if you have a refractive index for blood, then you have the effects of blood plasma and red blood cells and different types of white blood cells and platelets and many, maybe if you have a pathogen, well, that will interact. If you have a, a by um, malaria is called by uh, caused by a, a pathogen, a parasite that lives inside, or it gestates inside red blood cells, and then they burst and it comes out and lives in the bloodstream. Those are obviously also going to interact with light. They're going to scatter light in their own way. They're cells in the, or, or they're tiny organisms in the end, right? So the way these things, these all these different components with different shapes and different sizes and different optical properties interact with light, the way they scatter light, give a very specific refractive index at each wavelength. So that means if we work backwards, and this is a hard problem in physics, it's always looking at something and working backwards and saying, what do, it, what do its properties have to be in order for, for it to look the way it does? Rather right. than the forwards problem, which is very simple, it's if I know the laws of physics and I know I have this with these optical properties, then it has to look like this, right? Uh -huh. But working backwards is a difficult problem. And that's basically where the problem is at, at the moment. It's if these are the refractive indices of the blood, of blood at different wavelengths, then this has to be the composition. It has to have this many red blood cells, which do or don't have enough hemoglobin or enough oxygenated hemoglobin in them. There are this many white blood cells. There are this many pathogens of this type. That, that's really cool research. Just to take back from the entire episode and, and to focus on what you're doing is that light is literally not just what comes out of the light bulb, right? It, there's so many facets that we take advantage of. Uh, in day-to-day -day life, like possibly something, what you're doing with minimally invasive technology to to look at what's in our blood. Like, that's awesome. So, yeah. Sorry, it, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just wanted to say how it, you know, there's way more applications of light than, than what the normal person would suspect. 
No, it's, it's, it's fine. I, I was kind of uh, done. I do want to add a small caveat. So I think what I, I've said, this is what I do. And this is the intended application and made it sound like it's this super awesome thing that's going to revolutionize the world. I mean, I hope it is. I hope it ends up being something revolutionary. But there is a caveat. There is red blood cells form about 40% of what's in blood and plasma is 50 odd percent so white blood cells and platelets together are only one percent under normal conditions assuming you're not fighting off an infection and you don't yeah. have leukemia um or anemia or you know under normal conditions for a healthy person red blood cells are about between 40 and 45 percent and the red most of the rest is plasma so any change in the properties or number of white blood cells or platelets is going to be a change of 1% in what you see, even possibly smaller because white blood cells happen to interact less strongly with light than red blood cells just because they're spherical, more or less uh -huh. spherical, and red blood cells are not spherical. The less spherical something is, the more strongly it interacts with light at a micro level, the more strongly it scatters light. So the fact that yes. red blood cells are not spherical means they interact more strongly. So you've got a less than 1% effect or contribution from the white blood cells in the plate. Yeah, Most I guess of if it you is look a... back at a macro scale, it's not it's not a problem. But if you're looking at a micro scale, it might just be a problem. It is a problem because then it's going to be very hard to see any small variation, even within the healthy interval of you know some people have a, a few more red blood cells than others, and a few some people have. So you fewer blood cells than others, but it's all within the healthy range, right? Yeah. In, 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 in medical tests, you always get a range. From here to here, it's normal. You're there, so you're healthy. Or you're out there, so you're not healthy. and You should take care of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So even a small variation in red blood cell count or properties will probably mask a moderate variation in white blood cell count or properties. So some things are going to be more easily to, more easy to diagnose than others. If you have anemia, that's a deficiency in the number or the properties of the red blood cells, ah, right? So yeah, that's going right. to be very, very visible because those are the main component of blood. Right. Something where you have a variation in properties of white blood cells might not be so visible. Mm, I see what you're saying. I think that's where it comes to be, you know, we have to figure out the model aspect to it, but then also let it run with data, you know, let yeah, it compile a database, you know, with real life applications. That's uh, right. Beautiful application of artificial intelligence. <laughs> that, <laughs> Honestly. That is, that is right. I agree. It would be a beautiful application of it because you could train your model. Once you've got the, the theoretical model, you can then train a computer to determine what the properties of a, of a blood sample are based on these numbers, right? Right. Instead of having a thousand patients come in that have, you know, a thousand different types, you could just do a, a localized sample and then have the program, you know, do its own learning, um, yeah. create its own data set based on the fluctuations of, of uh, concentration and within your blood of, of different cells. So I think that's, right. that's that's pretty cool. I think that's really cool. Maybe would do you want to recap it all before we before we get out of here? Maybe. 
Uh, sure. So uh, from the top, or just uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we could just briefly say that first of all, light is light is fantastic. Secondly, it's created by by interactions in space time anywhere. Whenever energy is added to a system, you're more than likely going to get light as a result because of entropy. That's right. And then how it is found throughout the, the electromagnetic spectrum is just how much energy was added uh, initially to get that result of a state chasing a lower energy state. So right. the more, the higher the energy, the, the lesser the wavelength, the higher the frequency and the more energetic your wave is. Whereas yeah, the more blue shifted it is. The more blue shifted, right. And then, <laughs> and then red shifted obviously is, is the other way around. And then the applications here are, are impeccable with uh, absorption and scattering between what you see in, in the atmosphere, what you see throwing a, a penny into a, a fountain to, you know, absorption. You set out a piece of metal uh, in the yard and say it's snowing outside and you put a little bit of snow on it. The snow melts on it pretty much, I, I would say, instantaneously. You know, it's all due to, to absorption. Yeah, metal, because metals absorb so strongly, they're, they're so shiny because they absorb so strongly. And because right. they absorb so strongly, they're such good heat conductors. Right. They absorb light more efficiently than other things, and that is why they heat up so easily. Right. Anything in life, you know, has, has, has light to it. And it's also important to understand that we only see a, a small portion of the entire spectrum. Light is the entire electromagnetic spectrum. It's not yeah. just visible light. Visible light's a little portion of it. But imagining, you know, what we could see if we can see the entire spectrum would be, I think, would be disgusting. I, I think what we see and what we experience through technology is absolutely beautiful. I can walk away, you know, from a piece of technology and have bliss, bliss and simplicity. But then I can also think about what I could see through the lens of a telescope. Alex, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say, as you said, light is so much more than just visible light. And as well, it's so much more than just the, the way things look. There's such richness, even though I said everything is everything boils down to scattering and absorption. Yes, it does. But there is so much richness in the way light interacts with matter and the way light is scattered by or absorbed by matter and then emitted back by matter. Well, the study of light is just it's beautiful to me. It's very, very rich. There's so many aspects of optics that you could uh, go into, that you could study and still not know all there is to know, even in that single aspect. So scattering, I've dedicated all of my my professional career to studying the scattering of light. That's not way too long, but uh, it's been a few years, and I still don't know nearly everything there is there is to know about the scattering of light. And there is such a richness that the applications are just endless. I work on one tiny application. And there are people doing some fantastic and mind-boggling things out there just using light or the interaction of light with, with matter. You hit the nail on the head, I think. So, um, Alex, it was great having you on the show. It was great getting your expertise. And it was also great getting to hear about what you're working on, which is fantastic. I wish nothing but the best for, for your results. And I hope somebody out there gets in contact with you <laughs> about this. Uh, I really do, because it, it would be revolutionary for the, for the health field. So thank, thank you, you very much. Th thanks for your kind words and thanks for having me. It's, it's been a true pleasure. Absolutely. 
That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest star Alex for sharing his knowledge and vast expertise. We hope that you took away some great information on light, the electromagnetic spectrum, applications, and of course, Alex's fantastic research on minimally invasive blood examination using optics. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by myself, marketed by Courtney Page and Maria Pusateri, and QC'd by Panya Pit Erickson. I bet you've just caught that I edited this myself, so if you know anyone or if you are interested in helping me out with audio editing in particular, please reach out in any way, shape, or fashion. After this episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcast on. We are always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.